Hello and welcome to Global Digital Futures podcast brought to you by the SOAS Coding Club. I'm your host, Chipoma Pondera, and you're listening to SOAS Radio. This week, we welcome Professor Rhonda Zelesny-Green to speak about mobile phones and educating the girl child in Kenya. Rhonda is a mobile technologist, educator and researcher whose professional experience spans the public, private and civil society sectors. She specializes in educational technology, especially mobile learning, as well as gender, teaching and training and policy advice. Rhonda regularly publishes in academic forums and is globally recognized as the world's foremost expert in gender and mobile learning and she is a sought-after speaker and thought leader in this area. We spoke to Rhonda via a telephone interview so sound may be slightly compromised at times. So I'll start by asking for a short background on your research particularly at NDSS and with mobile education projects. So my PhD and actually my master's research project was based in in Nairobi, Kenya, and I was located in a girls' secondary school. And the particular level of school that I worked with was kind of like the uh, district level, which is what they would call, I guess, like the lowest level of school in Kenya, meaning if you didn't have a top performer, top grades, whatever, these are the kind of schools that you went to. And so the particular school that I worked with had about 400 girls. They came from, you know, quite different backgrounds, but one thing most all of them shared in common was that, you know, they came from a very low-income background. Some of them were mothers, some were child-headed households. Um, some, you know, they had parents, but they were out of Nairobi, so they were essentially taking care of themselves. Quite a variety, and, and basically what I sought to do, I had an interest in mobile technology, applying it in education, and so wanted to see what might be useful in this context. My master's, I actually kind of researched to see the level of mobile phone ownership among the students at the school, understand how they were using mobile phones, you know, and just really get an understanding of everything. And in my PhD, the initial intention was to create a kind of an application that was then going to be used to help, you know, further their education. But, you know, the first rule of doing research is to never try to impose what you think is best on the community. You have to go with what they want. And so I've read the data from the master's research and I did further, you know, conversations with people at the school uh, during the PhD and, and basically what everyone repeatedly said that they wanted for the girls was more books. So they yes. were very, very, you know, enthusiastic about furthering their education, you know, against all odds. And you know, the thing that they thought could help them do that best was having access to more books. And so when I learned that, it was like, okay, so I've been trying to come up with an intervention to like change their lives in a way that wasn't actually going to help. So what is out there, you know, that involves books that might be helpful to them? And that's essentially how my study came together, because what I did from there was essentially look for all the different mobile tools that were available in Kenya at the time. And so that was between 2013 and, well, that's when I started in 2013. Essentially, at that time, one of the tools that was available was a mobile application called World Reader. World Reader uh, is an application that 
at the time gave access to a library of more than 5,000 books, absolutely free of charge, yeah. and it was accessible on Android mobile phones as well as feature phones, which are like, you know, not quite smartphone, not quite, you know, the, the typical candy bar phone that only uh, calls and texts. And so most of the girls in my study own their own feature phone or they had an Android phone. Yeah. And so with that in mind, I, I set out to kind of see, all right, if I introduce this application to them, how will this affect their education since they said, you know, books would help us significantly. So that, that was the background to the study. Okay. And in your paper for the Gender and Development Journal, and also in your talk on that evening, you mentioned how government policies can increase or hinder the engagement that the girls could have with internet and uh, different technologies. And you described it as a form of digital oppression. Can you um, speak more about this and the types of policies that you were referring to? Definitely. So I would say the the major one that affected things in Kenya was introduced in 2008. So the Minister of Education at the time, they had just had the election in Kenya and there was a lot of post-election violence happening throughout the country. And so one of the ways that people were organizing at the time was through mobile phones. And there was the feeling that Youth, particularly students in secondary school, were using their mobile phones to contribute to the uprising violence, and that they were, you know, essentially kind of not totally responsible, but, you know, a lot of actors really did try to put a lot of the blame on youth at the time. So the education mm-hmm. minister in, in 2008 said, okay, from this day forward, mobile phones are going to be completely banned in schools. And so when he banned mobile phones in school, that essentially took away quite a bit of the potential for the use of mobile phones as an educational tool. Now, why I kind of focus on that, the mobile phone as opposed to computers or laptops, um, which they also have, is that the, the level of penetration of computers in Kenya when compared to mobile phones is, you know, you honestly can't make a comparison because so many more people have mobile phones. And so why I call that a form of digital depression is because you sincerely have an option and an opportunity to access educational materials that you can't get in Kenya or if you can, can't afford to get them because they can be quite expensive. And so by telling them, okay, you cannot use something that could actually help you quite a bit, that is a form of oppression. And so for many of these girls, they come from very poor backgrounds and, and then books um, and other school materials cost, you know, maybe even a day's wages. You honestly can't afford that. Whereas with mobile phones, you can buy a data bundle, you know, to help you access things much more cheaply. And for me, this particular policy is, is antiquated because students have the mobile phones, they're going to, to use them, but when they can't use them at school, they're taking away an opportunity to kind of expand their educational horizons. And right now, it's not really that justified because when students go home from, from school, most of them, um, but in particular girls, have 
have so little time at home and at school they can't use it and then oppression emerges in, in another way in that you know when they graduate because essentially most of the parents and teachers that I spoke to um, in my particular school setting felt that oh it's okay for girls to use their phones after secondary school right. so they become an adult and by that time they have no idea of what the, the good and bad ways are to use their mobile phones and you know, the best way we can can see how that can have an effect is, you know, what we see even in the U.S. and the U.K. where there's online bullying, there's all these things, these terrible things that happen through digital media. And the reason why is because no one actually educates people about why you should or should not do certain things online. And yeah. so in that way, they're being oppressed because they're not learning from using the school in yeah. any way, not in school and not after school. As you talk about that, I wonder whether there's a difference in perception, let's say, between the girls and their parents and guardians and also the government in terms of the necessity of access to, you know, mobile technologies and the internet. Like, what is the perception that parents might have of their girls using the phones and the perception government has of young people using their phones? The irony here is um, both in the master's research and in the PhD research, when I asked, I interviewed school officials like the teachers the administrative staff, um, I also interviewed parents, and pretty much all of the adult stakeholders said, oh, yes, I use my phone. They all use it for learning. In fact, one teacher was completing her master's degree and, and pretty much learned exclusively through her, her mobile phone. So for them, it was kind of like, oh, well, it's okay for me because I'm an adult and, you know, I know how to appropriately use a phone. But when asked about the same for their daughters or for the students that they taught, they would say, oh, well, you know, no, because they will get too distracted. They won't focus. They will only use it for bad. They won't pay attention in school. Like, there were so many, you know, negative reasons that emerged. And, and for me, I was curious as to why this perspective was there because with mobile phones being banned in 2008, at the time that they were banned, mobile phones had not been adopted in, in large numbers in 2008. Now, five, six years later at the time of my study, it happened, but they weren't using them in school, so I, I didn't understand where this perspective was coming from because yeah. there wasn't much actual tangible evidence of seeing that happen. And, and in my study, I went, you know, I was based in the school every day, and then I also went home with six of the girls, you know, over quite a number of weeks went home with them after school to kind of see their lives. And so they weren't even using their phones at home because there was no time. So I don't know where the adult stakeholders got this idea, but generally it was completely negative. Apart from a few exceptions, there were two teachers at the school who the students absolutely loved because they really made an effort to relate to the girls and what they were going through. And one teacher in particular, you know, he was very impassioned and he told me, he said, Rhonda, they, the books that we're using, this has outdated information from when I was a student. But with the mobile phone, they can get information on demand that's current and that is more accurate than what we have in school. And so I, I encourage them to use this tool all the time. And so 
perspectives like that are so, so very rare and but are sorely needed because Kenya has a kind of reputation for being a digital leader in Africa, yet its youth are not really being educated for that digital leadership. And is there a difference between the access that boys have and the and how much they're allowed to use mobile phones and other means of using the internet? When I went home with, you know, the girls that I did, the six girls that I did, their brothers most definitely did not have any restrictions on when and where they could use their phone. The girls themselves, who I did not go home with to do in-home observation, they also said the same thing, like, yeah, my brother, he can use it when we time, you know, there's no issue with that, and the parents, you know, never raised any concerns about them doing so. That being said, like tangible research evidence, Research ICT Africa uh, has done, you know, national level surveys in Kenya, examining uh, mobile phone access between males and females, and even that survey shows that men have more access to mobile phones than women do. What are some of the things that the girls valued in terms of media and technology use? What sort of content were they interested in looking at and accessing? Within my study initially, and I think this was because it was how it was framed and contextualized, the initial focus was on academic use. So using the mobile phone to look at academic books, to to search for academic things. But what I noticed from my study as time went on, and I I could see kind of how the girls use their phone and the content that they access, it generally moved beyond that. So, for example, there were some girls who wanted to look up recipes to cook for their family, so doing a bit of informal learning. There were other girls who wanted to read romance stories, or another thing was every girl in my study, there were 22 girls, Every single girl in my study actually read male condom instructions for how men can put on condoms, how the proper use of condoms. And so there were things about their sexual and reproductive health. They also read things about other children in different African countries. So they were interested in learning and knowing just about everything. And in particular, of course, complementing their studies. So if they, one student said, okay, if I couldn't understand the concept in class, I would then use my phone and, and world reader, the app that I introduced them to, to find out more specific information, to get visuals and so forth. Another girl shared that she actually used the mobile phone for kind of informal learning and sharing with her father because he would ask her to look up the latest football scores and then they would discuss these. So mm-hmm. it was quite a, a wide variety of ways the girls wanted to use their phone for educational purposes and, and how they actually did in my study. And how were the girls able to own mobile phones and fund their use? Sure. So one of the things, uh, this was kind of, you know, not difficult to, to verify, but you pretty much had to take the girls at, at their word. So there were many girls who got their phones from their parents who wanted to be able to contact them if they were out of town. And, and as I mentioned at the beginning, um, it was that some of their parents do not live in Nairobi where they live, so they needed the phone to stay in touch. You also had some girls who had older siblings, and the older siblings would kind of give them a hand-me-down phone that they would then use. Some girls had, like, a a boyfriend, 
and the boyfriend might gift them the phone as a way that they can stay in contact. So those were kind of the ways that it happened. And only in two cases were there girls that were in my study whose families had enough resources to where they intentionally bought their phone for them just for leisure, not only because they wanted to get in contact with them at any time. And what about the funding of the use of the phones? How would they even access the internet in order to use World Reader? Sure. So at the start of my study, I gave them 10 Kenyan shillings, which is the equivalent of about 10 pence in, in UK currency. Uh, and then after that, I did not provide any more. To get a data bundle in Kenya costs about five shillings for the, for the cheapest bundle. And with that bundle for five shillings, they were able to use the internet as they normally would for one week, which is a long time for mm-hmm. very, very cheap. But once their 10 shillings that I provided them with ran out, um, how they would fund it is the use of their allowance. So many of the girls would get allowance from the adult stakeholders in their lives that they could use for snacks or for whatever they, they wanted. And so some of them would set aside some of this money for that exact purpose. If it wasn't snack money, it would be money from you know adult stakeholders like their parents or whatever, who needed to get in contact with them or and vice versa, they would then provide some money for that purpose. So the money was coming that way. We also had a handful of girls who also worked. So there was one girl in my study who helped her mom in a, a chikaki shop. And so she would earn money from that. Um, some would get money from their older siblings who, you know, were just being generous and helping them out. So it was a variety of ways that the girls reported that they were able to get money for this purpose. And you've worked on a few, I would say, projects um, around ICTs and development. And can you just give us some sort of background on, you know, why it is so crucial for girls and women to be able to access technology and to be able to um, increase their digital literacy? Sure. I've been working now in ICTs for development for nearly a decade. Uh, and prior to that, you know, I've been working in international development, but with a, a focus on, on education. And one of the things that I will say is that technology in itself is simply a tool, right? It, it is not the thing that changes lives for women and girls. But what when it is used as a tool for empowerment, so many different pathways are open for women and girls. So some of the research that I've done and others have done have been able to show how women can use a phone, not only for educational purposes, but also for helping them to run their businesses. Um, some women use it as a form of, of safety, so there, there were a proliferation of apps starting from about 2012 where women could notify family and friends, just, you know, okay, I'm coming home, please know that if I don't reach there by this time, contact the police. They would use it as a form of safety and security. Another big thing that has opened up development opportunities for women and girls has also been the um, the use of mobile money. So mobile money has enabled 
women and girls in the develop in developing countries to raise money for their education. So some of the girls in my study said, Oh wow, I often will ask people for money for my education and they will send it to me via mobile money. We also have women who would get a salary or whatever from their husband or partner and then they would actively save that. So in Tanzania they actually have savings accounts that you can use in mobile money and, and studies have found that when women are able to have control of finances in this way. They can save more. They can make sure that the family's finances are much more stable. And these are things that were, quite frankly, were not possible before technology kind of really emerged on the continent. And so I think that, you know, we're still seeing a lot of opportunities available to women and girls um, through the use of technology as a tool. But again, you know, they're not using this tool in a vacuum because they're using them in societies that are typically very patriarchal, that, that favor men and boys. And so there's such complexity to how they use it. And this is not just in developing countries. I mean, as you see, you know, in the UK and the US, we also so have quite big issues with, you know, bullying, with, with men kind of trolling women online. And that was some of the reasons that girls and women also said they didn't like to use technology because of this harassment. You know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. And again, it all goes back to education because when people don't know how to use things appropriately or where to go for help when things, you know, go wrong, this contributes to an environment of fear. And at the end of the day, it's not technology that's the problem. And as you were speaking, I was thinking about the digital gender divide. And can you give like some examples of how that has existed in some of your research and sort of the conditions that exacerbated that? And maybe, I don't know, how some women overcome that, perhaps? Sure. I mean, well, the digital gender divide, you know, at its base is basically looking at access to and ownership of, of technology with a gendered lens, so comparing males and females. So the company that I work for, the DSMA, looks specifically at mobile technology, but you also have organizations like the International Telecommunications Union, the Alliance for Affordable Internet that look at other things like internet access, you know, access to TV, radio, things of this nature. And so what I have seen has pretty much dovetailed with broader research that women typically do not own or have as direct access to technology when compared to men. So, for example, some of the people who did not participate in my study, or rather were not a focus in my study, but, you know, I happened to talk to them while I was in Kenya, they would say, oh, you know, I'm sharing this phone with my sister, I'm sharing it with my mom. Now, I don't think that sharing is a bad thing, and and quite frankly, in in sub-Saharan Africa, sharing is a very common practice, but kind of the status and the sense of power that comes with owning your own device, whether that's a laptop, a computer, a mobile, or a radio, TV, whatever, it doesn't matter the type of technology, it kind of confers this aura of like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm at a, a greater standing in life because I've been able to acquire these things. Whereas with men, it's pretty much second nature and they have these things. And I would say that in some ways, the interventions that people design um, in, in emerging markets and in developing countries kind of exacerbate the issue because in essence, men still benefit much more than women because there are a number of reasons that prevent women from participating 
to begin with. Like they mm-hmm. may not have much time to participate. You know, they have the triple burden of work, school, and care, care work in the home. And there are a number of things that can block their participation that men just simply do not have to deal with. And I think that, you know, moving forward in terms of maybe how the, the digital gender divide can can be bridged is people need to be much more sensitive to these local kind of cultural ways of doing things and see how, not that they can change it, but how it can be transformed in a way that both men and women see this as a great thing. Because I know I see a lot of people who kind of say, oh, you know, just forget the men, we'll empower the women, that will fix everything. And it's like, no, that's actually going to exacerbate the problem. There have been studies where women have said, oh, I got my mobile phone, but now my husband beats me because he thinks I'm cheating on him. So it, in that sense, again, it, it's quite a double-edged sword. So people have to be much more careful about how they approach bridging the, the digital gender divide. And I think that it's one of those things where technology moves at such a rapid pace that it's a very advanced adult-like tool, but people, we are using it like infants. We, we still don't know that much about it. Um, we still don't know all the things we can do with it. And because there's kind of this gap in maturity, I think we, we have a long way to go in terms of, of our work in that area. Those were all of my questions. Do you have any other insights that you'd like to add or any projects that you want to shout out? Or? Sure. I mean, Qualitech has been doing work in this area for at least a decade in terms of, you know, looking at girls' access to technology and how they can use it for empowerment. So they have been criticized because it's had, at times, a more commercial lens applied to it. But I think that the people who are working there now are really trying to change that and really focusing on making, you know, substantial impact um, in ways that are not just for commercial gain. So definitely want to shout them out. Another project that I would love to shout out is the work that the ITU is doing with Equals. Um, And this is basically, again, looking at how women and girls can be equals in terms of technology access, um, technology careers, and things of that nature. Um, It's kind of moving the the needle on what possible in terms of women's participation there. And finally, uh, I would like to say that right now we are coming up with even more new technology. So you have a lot of artificial intelligence. And I would say that lately, as I've been doing a lot of research in this area um, into artificial intelligence, it seems like the same lessons that were not learned with TV, that were not learned with laptops, that were not learned with mobile phones, we're seeing it crop up again in terms of both gender and racial bias. And I think that we need to be very careful as we move forward to to ensure that there's more diversity, not only in terms of the consumers of of technology like AI, but also in who's manufacturing and creating it. And so I, I hope your listeners, if they've ever thought about being involved in technology in any way, that they really pursue that, especially if they're if they're women, because there's so much work to be done and, and we really need their support. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Rhonda. Discover more about this topic by accessing the following resources available in the show notes on our website. Discover more about Rhonda's work on her website, www.rondazg.com. Follow Rhonda on Twitter at RhondaZ underscore G. Read Rhonda's paper, 
Now I want to learn more, using mobile phones to further the educational rights of the girl child in Kenya, which is in the Gender and Development Journal, volume 26, number 2. Subscribe to the Gender and Mobiles newsletter, compiled every month by Rhonda and Alex Tyers of Panoply Digital, and discover Girl Effect, the organization founded by the Nike Foundation in 2004. They are experts in media, mobile technology, branding, and international development and they aim to support girls in expressing themselves, valuing themselves and building the relationships they need. Learn more about ITU, the United Nations Special Agency for Information and Communication Technologies. ITU is committed to connecting all the world's people and their project Equals promotes digital gender equality at both the global and national levels. Read Rhonda's interview with Anne-Mae Chang, a leading advocate for social innovation, titled A Special Gender and Mobiles Interview with Anne-Mae Chang. The Gender and ICT Gender Toolbox Brief emphasizes how power in society determines who benefits from and shapes the content, development and use of ICTs. Mapping Research in Gender and Digital Technology is a survey of research published between 2006 and 2017 that relates to gender and digital technology in low- and middle-income countries. Also discover the Gender, Technology and Development Journal, which publishes multidisciplinary new research and reflection in the area of gender, technology and development. Discover more about the MSTAR project, a research program that is fostering the rapid adoption and scale-up of digital finance, digital inclusion and mobile data in developing countries. And discover the USAID programs to address the digital gender divide which can be found on the USAID Digital Inclusion site. And finally, learn more about the Women Connect Challenge, a project by USAID to improve women's participation in everyday life by meaningfully changing the ways women and girls access and use technology. You can find us online at www.soascodingclub.com. Follow us on Facebook at Soas Coding Club and on Twitter at Soas Coding Club. We broadcast every two weeks, so tune in to discover what's to come in your global digital future.